Thanks for listening to The Rest is Politics. Sign up to The Rest is Politics Plus to enjoy ad-free listening, receive a weekly newsletter, join our members' chat room and gain early access to live show tickets. Just go to therestispolitics.com. That's therestispolitics.com. Welcome to The Rest is Politics Question Time with me, Rory Stewart. And me, Alistair Campbell. I wanted to start with a question from Senkai, who I think is a young student friend of mine. 24th of October this year marks the fifth anniversary of the retirement of Jeremy Haywood as the Cabinet Secretary. I was wondering if Rory and Alistair could reflect on the role of the Cabinet Secretary at shaping government policy and share any recollections they have of Lord Haywood's impact on public service. So let me start with that. Tell us a bit about Jeremy Haywood. Well, Jeremy was somebody I first was aware of when he was Norman Lamont's private secretary. Norman Lamont, Chancellor of the Exchequer under John Major, Black Wednesday and all that. And Jeremy was this rather skeletal figure that I used to see the whole time. Skeletal because he was quite skinny. Very skinny. Yeah. And, he, and I used to skinnier see him. Skinnier than me. It's definitely skinnier than you, yeah. Oh, well, right. Yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. yeah he was always there. He, always looked, he looked incredibly young. He looked very calm. And then when we won the election in 1997, I think he would have been at the Treasury then, but he was kind of, he was always somebody, absolute seen as a civil service high flyer and did various roles. And, and let's just sort of dig into that for a second. What, what makes, from the perception of, of you or the new Labour government coming, what is the civil service high flyer? What, what are the characteristics, if you were trying to tick off two or three characteristics oh, well, of with, a civil I, service I'd high I'd say flyer? with Jeremy, phenomenal work rate and intellect. So they're very clever. They work very hard. Yeah. And also, we were aware that he'd done this job for the Conservatives. And yet, the minute that we came in, he was absolutely there for us as a government, delivering on the government agenda. Now, now one of the things that I've been grumbling about with the current Cabinet Secretary, Simon Case, mm. who's this very unusual person who got the job very young historically, having not really had the traditional career that led Dominic up to Dominic Cummings' appointment, it's right. said. I didn't know that. Interesting. So one of my grumbles about him is that he hasn't been conducting himself, as you can see from the WhatsApps during the COVID inquiry, with the kind of formality and dignity that I would have associated with the great cabinet secretaries. The past. Just to remind people, cabinet secretary, the most senior civil servant in the British government, runs the whole civil service. And because it's not the United States, we have very few political appointees. 99.9% .9 of government is run by the cabinet secretary. But the great people, you know, my father worshipped a man called Sir Burke Trend, Sir Robert Armstrong, who was Mrs. Thatcher. He was the economical with the truth man. That's right. He became defined by that, sadly, um, for him. I guess those people were quite sort of intimidating, quite formal figures. You can't really imagine them sending cheeky texts under the table, making jokes about the Prime Minister's wife. No, Jeremy was not that sort of person. But he was somebody who, I mean, Jeremy would just as likely be on top of the budget and what was happening in the budget process, but was also very good at spotting some of the difficult personal stuff that was coming down the track as well. I mean, the, you know, particularly in the modern age where you get so much about the wives, the kids, all that sort of stuff. Jeremy was just a, he was across everything, very straightforward to deal with, very honest, would always give a frank opinion. But ultimately, this is why, you know, when we talked to Theresa May for leading, and she said she never had a sense of the civil service trying to block, Jeremy Haywood saw his job as trying to help the government deliver on its agenda. So a great guy. And by the way, his, um, his widow, Suzanne, I'm going to give a shout out to her and her book. She's written this amazing book called Wave Walker about her childhood, where her parents just decided one day that they were going to, the kids were going to grow up on a boat. 
traveling around the world, constantly sort of, you know, going to terrible storms and capsizing and all sorts of terrible stuff. And, and so it's, 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 not, it's not a romantic story. It's no, not, it's not, not at not all. It's a wonderfully positive story because I always fantasize about putting my kids on a boat or something well, like that. Well, I, I, if you do, I wouldn't do it like this. And I've got to be honest, I think that Susanna's come through it to become an incredibly successful person in her own right with the childhood that she had. It's a pretty amazing story. Now, Rory, talking of um, people becoming, you know, very, very successful to the point that they get invited, as I was a couple of years ago, into important television programs, Stuart Preble, is that a name that rings a bell at yeah, all? Yeah, a bit, bit of a name. Okay, yeah, yeah, TV yeah. guy. Yeah. You might be amused to know, he tells me, that Rory is a sitter in next Wednesday's episode of Portrait Artist of the Year on Sky Arts. He is only the second sitter in 10 years who has chosen to stand for the entire four hours that he was being painted. The only other one was the rugby player, Gavin Henson. Now, Rory, first of all, who is Gavin Henson? Not Gavin Henderson, Gavin Henson. Gavin Henson. Right. Do you know who he is? No. You obviously didn't follow the British and Irish Lions tour that I was on in 2005 closely enough. You, you obviously he, weren't promoting it well enough. Well, that is not the case because I got into <laughs> a lot of trouble for over-promoting Gavin Henson, which if you Google Alistair Campbell, Gavin Henson photograph storm, you will uh, read and, all about and, that. And, and, and He was a rugby player. And are he and I similar people? You're very, very, very different. Apart from this thing about standing. Apart from the standing thing. Um, I don't know if they're still together, but he was married to Charlotte church mm. so what was this what was the standing thought? what was that about well I, I do love standing i don't like sitting but it did turn out to be a mistake because once you start standing you can't move because you've got three painters yeah. in front of you and you have to hold the same position and i began to realize as we entered the fourth hour you and tired. i was rocking back and forward on my feet and how were the paintings they, they <laughs> extraordinary it's incredibly unfair to portrait painters too. i know because you have to stand there and judge them yeah they, and, they and, turn also, around and also and they make th make them do them in four hours i mean i think to do it properly they would have wanted days one of them was a, a woman who essentially produced a sort of caricature of me it was a kind of slightly grotesque a slightly combative caricature there was another rather nice portrait which was of me full length. Only one of them actually attempted to paint me full ah. length, I discovered at the end, having stood up all the way through. Two of them just painted So that was my a face. total waste of time. Total waste of time. But anyway, she painted me full length. And then the third one that I selected was very impressive, but a bit embarrassing. It was an enormous canvas, sort of- Just the head. Six feet by, yeah, five feet, and just my head. Wow. And it was painted by Scott, who'd read my books, was very excited to be painting me, felt that we had a great connection with mountains and walking. But- I'm struggling to work out where to hang it because you can't really stick up in your own house well, a I sort of six-foot picture no, of your own head. No, you can't do that. I've had a lot of quite a lot of portraits done and sent to me, and one of the many reasons I was upset at my mum's death was the fact that my mum was the only one who really wanted them. Yes, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but now I, the one that I chose as the best was actually quite a small one, which we do have at home, and then there was another one which was kind of slightly David Hockney-esque. But you've also got three children. Can you not shelve them off? No, they don't want huge portraits of their dad either. Maybe no. when I'm dead. I, I, <laughs> I don't think right now they do. No, no. Perhaps the rest is politics. Office should just have our portraits up. Very good idea. I think, they should, I think they'd like that. The Spotify that. studio could yeah, be brilliant yeah, for that. Yeah. Yeah. Now, yeah. here's a question for you. William Dobson, we talked a lot about the Middle East on the main podcast, but did anyone else notice the irony, says William Dobson, of Rishi Sunak within the context of a governmental position to decry all forms of terrorism, meeting his Israeli counterparts at the King David Hotel. Now, 
Yeah, so this for that we need to tell the story of the King David Hotel. Yeah, so just to remind people, of this, so this was in 1946, and it was an attack by Jewish terrorists, Jewish terrorists approved by Haganah. This is when Britain was the occupying power in Palestine, and they went into this hotel, which was where a lot of the British military was based, set off a bomb that killed 94 people, including women, and was a devastating moment for Britain. Because particularly people like Churchill, who'd been strong supporters of the Zionist movement, State of Israel, were having to get up in the House of Commons and work out what to say about an attack, in this case, not by Arab terrorists, but by Jewish terrorists that had killed 94 British people. But you don't think Sunak should not have gone to the hotel because of that? No, I don't think so. But, but we, it, we definitely had meetings in the King David Hotel. But it is a reminder of the complexity yeah. of this, and people yeah. maybe don't remember that history. Yeah. yeah. Um, question for you, which I know you'll like, Celia Richardson. I know Celia Richardson. I know where this one's going. Yeah, that's it. I've actually I've met her too. One of the authors of the book, The War Against the BBC, How an Unprecedented Combination of Hostile Forces is Destroying Britain's Greatest Cultural Institution and Why You Should Care. Very long subtitle. Is now looking into attacks on the National Trust. Do Alison and Rory think there are parallels? Are they members of the National Trust? Have they voted yet? Voting really matters. Members haven't until the 3rd of November. So, see, I have voted. You have voted. I'm a member uh, of the National and Trust. And I've voted for what you might call the anti-restore trust ticket. Yeah. So we keep coming back to this largely because I think you're a friend of Celia Richardson. And there is a very interesting standoff happening in the National Trust. And actually, of all the polarizing issues in British politics, this is perhaps the most polarizing. And my who's, attempt, who's doing the polarizing? My attempt to try to do an explainer here is going to get me in trouble. It sides, certainly is. Because Alistair is very clearly on one side of this. So the argument of restore trust, and they have candidates, including Lord Sumption, mm. who was the Supreme Court and justice. He was, he was my lawyer at the Hutton Inquiry. Right. So Jonathan he did it Sumption. very, very well, but I think he's a bit off the pace on this one. Right. Okay. Anyway, he's their candidate for this. And the argument of the restore trust people is that they feel that the National Trust is moving away from the interests of its members for a couple of reasons. One of them is that they feel that the National Trust is increasingly putting more and more focus on landscape and nature. National Trust owns hundreds of thousands of acres of the British countryside. For example, it owns the place where the Sycamore Gap, where the Sycamore tree mm. was cut down, owns a lot of Hadrian's Wall. And Probably the most exciting thing that the National Trust has is it owns an enormous amount of Britain's coastline. It had this incredible thing called Project Neptune, where it put together a lot of Britain's coastline. But the argument for the Restore Trust people would be that another very fundamental dimension of the National Trust is its historic houses and collections. And they feel that the staff of the National Trust have often become, they think, embarrassed about the historic houses and collections, too apologetic for them liable not really to present them in the way that the people who donated these houses to trust would have liked them presented. Mm. And to try to hit a balanced line on this, English Heritage, which I talked to a bit, would say that maybe some of the things National Trust did presenting some of these houses five, ten years ago is not the way English Heritage would have dealt with those issues. Well, I'm, I was also speaking to somebody from English Heritage recently, and I was asking them to explain to me what they thought was going on with this restored trust thing. The person I was talking to took a very different line. They basically said they felt this was yet another part of the kind of so-called anti-woke cultural right, trying to find another cause to get people excited about. I do think there's something really strange going on in our politics at the moment. This 
BBC is a classic example. You know, I think you and I both would agree that we might sometimes criticise the BBC on individual stories and individual decisions. I'm not sure it's very wise for Tim Davey to be going to the 1922 committee, for example, unless he's also doing the same for the PLP. But the BBC is a massively important institution and we should defend it and promote it. And I think the National Trust is in the same place. And I do see a parallel in that these are good institutions being undermined because they don't fit this very narrow worldview. Yeah, well, I think something that I also think, though, that you can have incredible, wonderful institutions. And the BBC is a fantastic example of that. But, you know, I've, I've just been re-watching W1A, the mm. amazing comedy about BBC. And, of course, there is a truth in all these bureaucracies that they can oh, yeah. get a bit peculiar and a bit absurd. So you also need to be able to say all these things can be improved, all these things can be reformed. Yeah, yeah, you you don't that. want to get but, but, into a sort this, of knee-jerk defence. And I, and I think, you know, there, there are some really interesting questions around the National Trust. So, for example, on their landscape management, how they get the balance between protecting small farmers. So, Beatrix Potter, I hit this in Cumbria, basically gave her land in Cumbria as somebody who really believed in small family farms and rare breeds and sheep farming. And the National Trust has increasingly emphasised rewilding which is making a lot of those tenant farmers very unhappy. So mm. there are issues to get into there. I think there are issues around the place of volunteers in the National Trust. I think a lot of the volunteers who gave a lot of time and life to the National Trust felt that they were increasingly seen as a bit embarrassing and a bit marginal and the whole organization was professionalizing and it wasn't giving enough space mm. to volunteers. So there's stuff that can be done. And I think it's a pity if you have to be either in the form of abolish the BBC or in the form of everything the BBC does is wonderful and there's no bureaucratic nonsense. Yeah. Okay. James O'Leary. Will Nigel Farage's prophecy that he'll be Tory party leader by 2026 come true? If he does, what does this say about conservative politics and the direction it's going? Well, what do you think? Look, I said on the podcast, and I think you were a little bit taken aback. I think Nigel Farage does have his eyes on the Conservative Party. It was really interesting at the party conference that he and Liz Truss and Suella Braverman were the ones who were getting all the love from the crowds. And he was a conservative. He's a game player. You talk about a political entrepreneur. He's somebody who moves effortlessly from one campaign to another. He's just a campaigner. I mean, Nigel Farage would be utterly hopeless as a minister, utterly hopeless as in a position of government, I think. But if the Conservative Party loses the next election, I think it will move substantially to the right. Suella Braverman is probably the favourite to take over as leader. I think she will very quickly become horrendously unpopular with the public. And I think Nigel Farage by then might well be back inside the Tory party and want to take it on. Do you disagree? Well, boy, I mean, I, I hope we're a long way from that. I, I mean, I do agree with you that the most likely betting is that when the Conservative Party loses the next election. And you'll definitely win now. Yeah, I think it's it's almost impossible for me to see Rishi Sunak winning the next election. The latest by-elections just totally confirm that. And I think we also enter in a politics where even if there hadn't been the catastrophes of Liz Truss's economic management and the catastrophes of Boris Johnson's premiership, people want to change. People don't like incumbents. It's not, not a climate that suits incumbents. And I think there is a lot of anger from the right of the Conservative Party against people like Rishi Sunak because they feel he betrayed their great hero, Boris Johnson. And they've learned all the wrong lessons. They think that the reason they're not more popular is they weren't right-wing enough. You know, you've got Liz Truss signing her budget and saying, you know, we should have gone even further, cut taxes more, 
We've got other people saying we should have done an even harder Brexit. And this is what the Conservative Party did under Ian Duncan Smith when it lost to Tony Blair. It went to the right. But eventually, of course. And it's what Labour do as historically has done when we've lost. Yeah, with Michael Foote and Jeremy Corbyn. Yeah, yeah. Go to the left. But in the end, of course, these parties come back if and when they come back because the party members begin to want to win again. And then they move back to the centre ground. And that's what happened with David Cameron. They finally got fed up with being the sort of extreme fringe party and they wanted to win again. And they moved mm. back to the centre ground. There's a related question from Tom. Is reform a strategic advantage or disadvantage to Tories in the coming election? What might the implication for future elections be? And Richard Tice, the leader, he did an interview at the weekend where he was very absolutely vicious about the Tories. Now, Farage used to be vicious about the Tories and then did the deal with them that helped them win the last election. But Tice was basically saying there is no way they're going all out to try and destroy the Tories. They didn't do that well in the by-election, but, you know, given they'd had pretty low profile, they, you know, they didn't lose their deposits. No, it can be a big problem. I mean, one of the reasons why David Cameron agreed to the Brexit referendum is that in the local council elections, the European elections... Nigel Farage's party was taking an enormous number of votes mm. from the Tories. They were getting up towards their 20-25% margin. And he really believed that it would be almost impossible for the Conservatives to secure a majority without promising a referendum. And by doing so, he actually did huge damage to the country, right? But what he was able to do is to put that threat from the right to bed. So I think it, it could be a real issue. Okay, Rory, lots more questions. Let's take a quick break. You were probably signing your own death warrant. Well, probably, but I'd moved into damage limitation mode. Who killed Liz Truss? I'm Robert Peston from The Rest Is Money, and we've been telling the story of the worst financial crisis faced by a British government for 50 years. The consequence of the catastrophic mini-budget. And now I'm talking to the Prime Minister. At that time of extreme chaos, Liz Truss. Over the course of two episodes, I ask her what she knew and when, how much responsibility she takes for the crisis, who she blames, and of course, who killed Liz Truss. Listen to The Rest is Money now, wherever you get your podcasts. Question from Joe Rooks. I'm currently on a maternity ward waiting for my third born to arrive. My wife and I have yet to choose a boy's name. Have you ever noticed a pattern of impressive people with a shared name? Any suggestions you can offer? My wife has already vetoed Alistair and Rory. Oh, that's very sad, isn't it? Perhaps, perhaps it's a girl. Oh, it's a boy's it's name. A boy um, I read something in one of the magazines at the weekend that it's now big business in America of advising people about their names. God, can we get into that? What, get them to sponsor the podcast? Yeah, yeah. But somebody was making like a fortune giving people advice on what their names fitting, you know where, where the vibe of a certain name fits with the siblings names fits with the brilliant I, the whole thing sounded you don't think AI ridiculous. could do that even more quickly it probably could yeah, do that yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely yeah. and I saw a picture of Elon Musk with one of his children uh, I wouldn't recommend Elon I'm not recommending Elon I'm, I'm very down on Elon at the moment in lots of ways but his child has this mathematical formula and what are you supposed to do go along and say my name is A squared minus MC2 yeah the artist formerly known as. What are we going to say to Joe, though? Well, so I... I I'm Why a, were you called Rory? Um, I think I'm called Rory because my mother had a friend at university who she adored and thought was the most glamorous man in the world called Rory McPherson, who was the kind of perfect Scot. He was an incredible... So you christened Rory? No, because the priest in Hong Kong, I was christened in Hong Kong, refused to christen me Rory, said it wasn't a proper Christian name. So I was christened Roderick. So you're Roderick on your birth certificate? Yeah, because the priest said, I can't christen you Rory because it's not a proper saint's name. 
So what, you've got a Saint Roderick, but not a Saint Rory? Apparently, yeah. It's, it's well, so if you become sanctified, would that, would that well, solve well, the, the problem? But the problem is I'd still be Saint Roderick, wouldn't I? <laughs> we called our son firstborn Rory. We've got no Rory's in the family. But I'd written a novel where the, the hero was called Rory, and I think there was something going on with that. It's a nice name, though, Rory. I like it. Not, not bad. And I called my eldest son Alexander on the grounds that it gives you a lot of choice. So you can be Sandy. Al. Al, Alex, Ali, Alex, Alex, Zan, Xander, <laughs> Sasha. And he chose to be Sasha. Yeah. yeah. How did that happen? I don't know. I th- we called him it as a baby and it's just really stuck with him. He loves it. I, his second name is Wolf. And I thought maybe- Wolf? He, yeah. I thought he might want to be called Wolf Stewart. That might be quite a strong name. Wolf with one O or two? With one L. Yeah. <laughs> one O. One O. Okay. So Wolf just, the animal, not like Wolf the, the name. An- no, the animal. Yeah. Wow. Uh, but he, he didn't go with Joe, that. I don't know if this is helping you at all. I noticed last week, I mean, Gary Lineker, as you know, is our boss. Somebody sent me something saying that nobody in the United Kingdom was christened Gary last year. No. That can't be true. That's extraordinary. It? Grace, our daughter's name, has become very popular. And Callum, our other son, that's becoming popular as well. We chose our names partly because there weren't that many people using them at the time. Well, when I was called Rory, it was very unusual. Yeah. And it was actually very helpful for my political career, as I guess it was for that rather horrible person we don't mention on the podcast to have an unusual first name. Oh, him. Yeah. Yeah. I think Tony Blair was a good name for a politician. Gordon Brown, that was a good well, name. Well, I, I had this thing of, uh, of people running on Rory the Tory, or I'd go Tory for Rory. Right. I get quite a lot of people saying, how, say, they say to me in the swimming pool, how's Rory the Tory? <laughs> well, they do, so they do that. <laughs> Good. Okay. What about size of the British Army? Peter Wilson, is the size of the British Armed Forces a problem given all that's going on in the world right now? Yes. Yeah. I don't know whether that's the Peter Wilson who was the senior advisor in Downing Street and should be our next ambassador to China. I presume not. Oh. The British Army sits at one of its smallest level on record. And although we are spending... Is it, you can fit the entire army into Old Trafford, is that right? Yeah, I mean, it, it's terrifying. I mean, to put it in context, you know, we talked about China on the pod yesterday. China's got an army of about 2.3 million. We've got an army which, you know, hovers around about 70,000. Mm. Taliban future in Afghanistan, Cactus Mark. Afghanistan seems pretty far from being the societal collapse that was routinely being predicted when the Taliban took over. Is it time to accept the Taliban will be the governing power there for the foreseeable future and engage with them? This was the question that got my colleague in enormous trouble. This was Tobias Elwood, the chair of the Defence Committee, eventually forced to resign from the Defence Committee. Because he basically said yes. Because he basically said yes to this question. I'm aiming to get back to Afghanistan in the next few weeks, and maybe we could do a little bit more of Mm. a detailed pod when I'm back there. But I think, first thing to say is security has massively improved. I mean, that's not necessarily credit to the Taliban because they were the people setting off the bombs in the first place. But you can, for the first time, for 22 years, travel safely from one end of the country really to the other. And and also there is now a culture and a a climate of fear. There is a culture. Which stops people doing things that they might have done before. Absolutely must make it clear that the Taliban continue to be incredibly chauvinistic and aggressive towards women and opposed to female education and a lot of female participation in the workplace. However, and it's always difficult when you have to say however, it is true that the country is secure and stable, which it hasn't been for a long time. Mm -hmm. So many Afghans will say, look, I don't like the Taliban, but thank goodness I'm not in fear of my life all the time. And there isn't really much of a sense of a credible alternative. Nobody else is emerging soon. And sanctioning the Taliban doesn't make any difference to the Taliban because they're not people who want to go shopping in Harrods. It tends to just hurt the Afghan people. So I think the idea of 
engaging responsibly and thoughtfully with limits with the Taliban has to be the path that we go on because they are a fact. They're going to be there. So the Tobias Elwood situation is very interesting then. So essentially he's he's lost a quite significant position where he, I think he was doing a very good job because he said something that was not far off where we ought to be. And that just underlines that we're in a kind of mad world where you can't actually say what you think. Yeah, you have to be politically. incredibly careful. Now look, talking about saying the right thing, Joseph Mansell says as follows, I'm 27, I've always been very interested in politics and I'd like to run as a local councillor, brackets Labour. In my stupid, typical younger years, I was a strong Corbyn supporter, along with making some stupid remarks on social media. I'm now slightly left of centre, I've become a more reasonable and mature person. Would this completely ruin any chances I had to get into politics? My answer is I hope not. I think, think most people. Well, look, I think this is quite smart. This question because the only way that he's going to get is out to of be this, open about is it. Be totally open about yeah. it. Get straight out there on the front foot. Admit it. Go to the UK's top most listened to podcast and reveal the fact that he said stupid things. Yeah. Depends slightly what he said. Should we said. say his name again? Joseph Mansell. Yeah. Joseph, you don't say where you're from. Where yeah, you're going to be? Joseph, a it also counter. slightly depends what exactly yeah. you did say on Some social media. Some stupid remarks on social media. Yeah. It does depend what they are. Yeah. But most of us, Joseph. Even you occasionally sometimes make remarks. I did some terrible things when I was young. Yeah, that's also true. I mean, terrible. And things which, frankly, had I been running for a serious job in government or let alone... Could have got you in real trouble. I could have, yeah, yeah, and should have done. But I was totally open about them. I actually at one point sat down with Tony Blair and said, I'm going to go through every single thing I've done in my past that might be embarrassing. How did he take that? He took it reasonably well. But by you got to the ninth thing, was he sitting there looking at you? <laughs> the twenty fifth thing was. Uh, <laughs> so Joseph, I hope don't be put off. Be honest. Be open. And I think actually the whole thing about it, if you think that Keir Starmer's whole shtick about Labour is the Labour Party's changed, if you go to the Labour Party and say, "Well, I've changed as well with it," then I think that's fine. I hope you make it. Very good. Okay. Well, um, final question. So, Daniel Woodrow. Following Gillian Keegan's proposal this week for minimum service levels to be introduced in schools and colleges, should there also be minimum service levels for MPs? And what would you include if you wrote them? You first, then me. I don't know what they would be. You um, like the Nolan principles. Remind us of the Nolan principles. Honesty, openness, objectivity, selflessness, integrity, accountability, and leadership. But they're quite, some of those are quite hard to measure. So the Nolan principles, just to remind people, they were Nolan, Lord Nolan was a person that John Major appointed to put a a framework of agreed standards for public life. And by the way, it's not just ministers, it's for people right across the public services. I think every minister and every MP and every public servant should abide by those. I think it's very, very hard to have for, for MPs. I think that what's Chris Bryant's book, which is concludes that this is the worst parliament and we've had we've now had another one with peter bone now the latest and a long line of mps has got himself into trouble and that may be another by-election fairly soon but i think far better is that we have really good people wanting to be mps and lots and lots and lots of them so that local parties have a real choice so one of the things that i felt really disappointing um when i came in to parliament is that there was no proper initiation or induction mm. I read about this to plug uh, politics on the edge, but I try to describe the scene in the book because I arrive and I think- Have you got a book out? Oh, I've got a book out. Oh, yeah. didn't know that. Yeah, thanks. Um, so I arrive and I think this is going to be an opportunity to really explain to us as MPs what this job is about, what the moral expectations of this job are, what we're supposed to achieve. And instead of which, it was the most underwhelming 
disappointing thing. Essentially, we just sat there with the chief whip while he said, basically, your job is to shut up, vote with the government. And if you behave and keep your noses clean, you might eventually become junior mm. minister someday. And I, the contrast, I was very briefly in the military. And as you can imagine, Sandhurst is just a massive machine in trying to communicate values, trying to turn mm. people into officers and gentlemen or whatever the phrase is. Serve to lead was the slogan. I think you should have an induction to become an MP where you sit down, I don't know how many days or weeks it would be, where you say, this is the most important job imaginable. This is our code of honor. These are the values that we expect. Mm. This is how we expect you to conduct yourself. These are the great heroes of the past. These are the models that you should be looking at. This is what virtue in politics feels like. And, and I'm, it's, it's shocking that mm. we don't have that. I was at Sandhurst a few months ago because they do this podcast on leadership and I was interviewed for it. And they gave me the book the, the, the updated, to lead. I can't remember what it's called, it's yep. the Army Leadership right. Handbook. And it's, it's a really good read. It's really, really interesting. And I think you're right, actually. I think for MPs to sort of have that sense of, of purpose and leadership. I also, I really, I, I think Ginny Key didn't do herself any favours because to, you know, teachers, I go into schools the whole time, teachers are working their balls off, constant fear of Ofsted, constantly being asked to be social workers and mentors and you know some of them just barely finding time to teach and yet seeing this utter shambles of a government constantly saying that teachers are to blame for what's going wrong in schools yeah i i, I mean i think it's that that's a difficult one and obviously i'm going to defend Gillian keegan again of course you are your cause, friend because my friend i did find when i was dealing with prisons that minimum standards can be a helpful way of thinking about things mm. what would you have as minimum standards for mps You've given the sort of big picture thing, but yeah. what will you say to an MP? Because, for example, lots of people well, get angry when they set, don't you, vote. You could set you could set minimum expectations around what you'd expect, how much time you'd expect them to spend in a constituency. You could set minimum expectations on replying to constituents' emails. Mm -hmm. You could set um, minimum expectations on the number of, um, I don't know, certain kinds of work. But I think it's difficult. I mean, questions. Well, part of the problem is appearances that, in Parliament. Well, part of the problem is that the whole job is a bit weird because mm. as soon as you become a minister, you're still an MP, but being a minister is a full time job. So being an MP can't be a full time job, otherwise you wouldn't have any time. And Tony mm. Blair was an MP when he was prime minister, mm. so I'm, I'm sure he loved his constituency and did a good job for them. But his main job, I would hope, was being prime minister. Who's being prime minister? Maybe there's a case actually for, as an MP. So people point to people to run their constituencies. But maybe we need we need MP teams so that you're electing not just the MP, but if you become a minister, you then have a, a team to, to, to somebody yeah. who's, who is a public and, figure in the constituency. And be honest as well about as just that, because often when I spoke to primary schools in Cumbria, people would say, what are you doing going to Westminster? Why are you not in Cumbria? Mm. Just communicating how strange this job is mm. that you're supposed to be in your constituency all the time, mm. supposed to be in Westminster all the time, voting all the time, and you're supposed to be in your ministerial office all mm. the time, and that you can't do all three. Right, well, on that job creation scheme for politics, um, let's uh, call it a day and see you next week. Very good. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs>